Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given us grace to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity by the confession of a true faith and to worship the unity in the power of the divine majesty. Keep us steadfast in this faith and defend us from all adversities. For you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, live and reign, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week from the Congregation at Prayers, John 17, 17. Let's speak this together. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Okay. Firstly, what does it mean to sanctify? To make holy, yeah. And here's your clue. Sanct. What does that sound like? What should it remind you of? Not sin. I'll give, I'll give you sanct. Yes, who said? Someone was right, and I want to give them credit. Sanctus, which is the word, that's the uh, part of the divine service, one of the pillars, the five pillars of the service, the ordinaries. Sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. All it means is holy, holy, holy. So when you see any kind of a root that looks like this, sank or sanct, it means it has to do something with holiness. So here, sanctify is to be made holy. And of course, these are the words of Jesus. This is part of his prayer, uh, praying to the Father, sanctify them, make them holy. So then, who is them? Okay, us, yes those whom he has come to redeem. Uh, he prays uh, that all might be made one, as, and he says, even as we are one. Make them to be one even as we are one. Uh, praying for his people, for his children. Uh, almost you can say that them is those, if you can even read this, I have come to redeem. Those I have come to redeem. And how are they sanctified? Well, they're sanctified by truth. I preached a whole sermon on this uh, a while ago on Pontius Pilate asking a good question when he says, what is truth? And that it's in St. John's Gospel that that question is recorded and in none of the others. Because John's Gospel talks a whole lot about truth. And Jesus answers the question. So sanctify them by your truth. Well, what is truth, you and Pilate say together. And he says, well, I'm glad you asked. Your, that's to the Father, your word is truth. And then this is really the last thing that I want to highlight here, word. Why did I capitalize word? Yeah, because it's Christ. 
because when Jesus says, your word is truth, he's not just saying, hey, you're going you're gonna to get some guys and they're going to write some letters down in a book and that's going to be true things in that book. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus also is the word. This is why John's gospel is so great because you get all of this. The word made flesh. I am the way, I am the truth. And here it all is together. Your word is truth. Who is the word? The word is Christ. Which is why these words on a page are true because they have at their substance and at their, as their source and at their very center, Christ. This is why everything in the Bible has to be about Christ. The entire Old Testament points to Christ and the entire New Testament points back at Christ. Everything is about Christ. The entire Bible is the story of Jesus and what he does for you. Okay, let's speak this again. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is true. Great. The catechism. We're in the table of duties now. We'll be doing this over the summer. I think we're just going to make a habit about spending our summers doing the table of duties. So here we go. To bishops, pastors, and preachers. What does God's word say about bishops, pastors, and preachers? The overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Right, first thing that I want to say is Bishops, pastors, and preachers aren't terms that are mutually exclusive. The purpose of using these three terms is that these are the three terms that appear most often in New Testament descriptions of the pastoral office. So bishops, pastors, and preachers are three words that all mean the same thing those who hold the office of the ministry. You can't be a preacher if you're not ordained as a pastor. You can't be a bishop if you're not a pastor. And obviously, the term pastor is right there. Now, when we talk about bishops, there's two things that you need to think about that word. Firstly, uh, like here, this is from Timothy, the overseer, that's how this is translated, but the word is episkopos, like an episcopacy an episcopal structure, the bishop. That's what the word is. There's presbyteros and episkopos, and they mean overseer, the head, the bishop. Um, so bishop means, first of all, every pastor. Why? Because every single pastor is the overseer of his territory, I'll say. Because if I call it territory, then I can justify myself in being very jealous for all of you. I don't like people encroaching on my territory. <laughs> okay? But anyway, so the bishop, the pastor as bishop is the head of his church, which is also why you can call your pastor father, because it's sort of the same thing, that your pastor is the spiritual father of all of these children. Uh, in another sense, bishop can also mean 
somebody who is an actual overseer in the sense of a pastor whose charge is not to watch out for congregations, but whose charge is to watch out for other pastors. Now, in the Lutheran Church, uh, we would often commonly refer to a bishop as a district president. Why? Because the district president's main job is to oversee the work of his pastors in the district. He does not have a call to a congregation. He's not a parish pastor. He is ordained and he is a pastor, but he isn't a parish pastor in the sense that he's not currently serving a church. Why? Because he's serving all of the pastors and overseeing them to make sure that what is taught and preached by his pastors are in conformity with the Word of God. Now, what are the qualities of a pastor? This matters just as much to the laity as it does to, uh, to the office of the ministry and anyone who would seek to enter it. Obviously, if you're a pastor, someone who's already ordained, you look at this and this is your model. This is how I need to make sure that I behave. If you are a seminary instructor or an admissions person at the seminary, you have to look at this and say, this is what the model should be when you're These are the kinds of men that we're looking for. And you, as the laity, also use this as your guide when you say, now we'd like to call a pastor, but what should our pastor look like? This is what your pastor should look like. He should be above reproach. He shouldn't be somebody who's walking around annoying people and getting into trouble all the time. Your pastor is going to sin because your pastor is a man. Uh, but your pastor ought not be given to sin, and he, ought, he better not be given to public sins, manifest public sins. It's very bad for that uh, to be the case. So you, he must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, no polygamists here, Temperate, self-controlled, respectable. He must be hospitable. He must be able to teach. Not given to drunkenness. He can't be violent. He has to be gentle. Not somebody who's going to walk around getting into fights or picking fights. Not somebody who loves money. Nobody joins the... Uh, nobody enters the office of the Holy Ministry expecting that we're going to store up hordes of earthly treasure... You don't go into the office of the ministry because you want to be rich. So if you're somebody who does want to be rich, that is a red flag. This job isn't about treasures of the world. There are greater and more important treasures uh, that abound than money or goods. Okay? Uh, and he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, if you've seen the congregation at prayer, perhaps you're reconsidering this. <laughs> but, no, in all seriousness, if the pastor can't manage his own family, how does that instill any confidence in his people or in his overseer that he will be able to manage the larger family that is this body of Christ over which he has been placed? So, it's, this is in a sense saying if you are responsible with little, you will also be responsible with much. Do good with little and you will do good with much. Uh, okay, that's long. Uh, any questions? Very well. Away with you.
Good, good, good. Okay. Uh, I apologize, anybody who's here that listened to the podcast from last week. Uh, the Bible class cut off, and the reason was because the app that I was using to record it uh, limits the recordings to one hour. So uh, it cut me off. Uh, so I'm trying something new, but I wanted to apologize for if you tried to listen to that and didn't make it all the way to the end. So I will be better today. Uh, okay, also today is the first Sunday of the month. We've got a hymn, a new hymn of the month. You're probably all overjoyed because it seems like this was a long month. We have uh, maybe an extra week, it seems, almost, on, on this particular hymn. And it's a great hymn. One of my favorites, actually. But I am also ready to move to a different hymn. Uh, so there's a handout in the back, if you didn't pick it up. And, of course, we'll sing the hymn at the end of class. The hymn is 652, Father, We Thank Thee. Um, and I, this is a really neat hymn for a few reasons, which we will talk about. Somewhat tongue-in-cheek, it is simultaneously one of the oldest hymns in the hymnal and one of the newest hymns in the hymnal. Because the text that was used is actually from the Didache, which you've heard me talk about before. Uh, and I'm just going to get on my soapbox again here for a quick minute now that I have you all trapped in this room and tell you that if you have not read the Didache, you should. You, you very much should. And if you want to borrow it, you can borrow it from me. I have two copies of it. Actually, I have more than two copies. Uh, but I have two copies that are easily lent out and easily read. It's a very quick and easy read. It is, I don't know, I think less than 40 pages total. And the font's really big, too. So it, it, it's really easy to read, and uh, it's very beneficial. The didache is, of course, that's Greek didache for teaching. Uh, the Didache is the short, the shorthand title for the, the complete work, which is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. Uh, so it's what the apostles compiled and wrote. Uh, in some ways, it's also church orders. So when you look at church orders, they're designed to answer the question, well, listen, I think it would be really great to be a Christian. I think it would be really great to be a part of the church. I just don't know what to do. How do I be a part of the church, and how do I be a Christian? And the Didache says, well, sit down. I'll tell you how to be a Christian. I'll tell you how to be a part of the church. Uh, so if you haven't read it, do, because it's, it's very good. And I do want to highlight one quick thing while I'm on this, because I really love the Didache. Uh, I love it to death. I think it's really important, and people don't know it like they ought. In Acts 2, and you don't have to turn there because I'll read it for you. Acts 2, 40 to 42. This is uh, after the big sermon on Pentecost. There's the crowd's response. Um, Peter preaches, and then this. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them. And I like that too, by the way. 
as a parenthetical because it's sort of like what John writes at the end of his gospel. Many other things Jesus did and said that aren't in this book. Uh, here it is again. With many other words, Peter testified. What you have here is the Cliff Notes version of what Peter said on Pentecost. He said a lot more, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Hey, there's your sermon theme. That's your sermon title. If they had a bulletin on Pentecost, that's what would be in the bulletin. Be saved from this perverse generation. Somebody came to church this morning, and I'm not going to name names, but it's someone who makes the coffee typically. And, <laughs> and this, this person just double-checked with me to make sure I was not going to preach a fire and brimstone sermon. Uh, but I'll tell you that if you really want to check and see, all you have to do is look at the title in the bulletin because if it says something like, be saved from this perverse generation, then you know you better show up in your shorts and t-shirt because it's going to get hot. <laughs> hey, I'll be here all week. Uh, okay, anyway, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. To gladly receive the word, think of the Ethiopian eunuch, okay? Because that's the, that's the icon of what it means to gladly receive the word. The Ethiopian eunuch is going along, reading the scroll of Isaiah, and he doesn't understand it. And Philip who was ordained by the apostles and sent out, he is a pastor, comes and preaches to him. He preaches the word of the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch from the scroll of Isaiah. This should be enough to tell you that everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus because he preaches the gospel of Christ from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. I mean, Jesus should tell you that already because he stands up and interprets the book of Isaiah uh, and tells them that it's all about himself. But anyway, Philip preaches to this Ethiopian eunuch who doesn't understand the scriptures, and when he understands, what is the first thing that he asks? Yes, there's water, let me be baptized. And lest anyone think baptism has to be by immersion only, a pastor must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. <laughs> Uh, lest anybody think that the Ethiopian eunuch is something that would somehow prove infant ba or, uh, baptism by immersion only, they're sort of in a desert area. So when he says, look, here is water, he's not saying, well, Philip, here's a pond that's big enough for me to be fully immersed in. Will this work? He says, look by the side of the road. Here's a little mud puddle. There's a little bit of water. Will that work? Can I be baptized with just this little bit of water? And Philip says, well, of course you can. But that's gladly receiving the word. That faith hears. Faith is sparked. And faith says, oh, oh this, is, this is really great. I, I, that baptism? That's where I get these gifts? Oh, oh, please, take me there. This is why we can baptize infants and have the parents or sponsors, or parents and sponsors, speak on behalf of the infant. Because you believe that the infant believes because the word works on that child. If you believe your little baby can listen to Mozart in the womb, then doggone it, that baby can hear the word of the Lord. Uh, 
So that child has the faith that's been working in them by the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of that word, and they receive it with joy, and they say, I want to be baptized. But they don't know how to speak, so you have to say it for them, because that's what they would say if they could. They'd say the same thing the Ethiopian eunuch did. I've received this word, and now I know what it is, and now I know where it's pointing me, and I know what it promises me. Please, look, here's some water. Can we be the stop the chariot right here? Take this mud water and rub it on me. I want to be baptized. That's joyfully receiving the word. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of the bread and in prayers. Hey, what does that sound like? Well, yes. You're, boy, you're all really good. It is about communion. I wasn't even going to be that specific, but I'm proud of you all. You make me a happy pastor. You make my, jo my work a real joy and not a burden. But here's, so you're right. Here's the broad sense of what I want you to see here. This is church. This is church, continuing steadfastly in the doctrine of the apostles, in the breaking of the bread, and in prayers. It's church! Hey, this is you. You're doing the same thing. You joyfully receive, and you continue receiving in the gifts that God gives. But the point of this long-winded rant about Acts is that in Acts 2.42, when it says they continued or they persisted steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the word in the Greek is didache. And it is not a verb. Not a participle. It's not that the apostles are teaching and they're hanging on to the words as the apostles are teaching. It's a noun. It is a thing. The teaching. What teaching? The didache! that they have these things written down. They compile the teachings of the apostles and that this is what the church looks like. So anyway, read the Didache. You can find it online too if you don't want to ask me to borrow my copy of it because you're afraid that I'll charge you an overdue fine or something when I check it out to you. <laughs> All right, so anyway. Hymn 652 is based on a few little bits of the Didache. It's a, it's a really short hymn, uh, only two stanzas. And most of it comes from Didache chapter 10, and one little bit from a fraction of Didache chapter 9. And we'll look at that in, in a bit. So that's why it's one of the oldest things, because the Didache is a first century document. For a long time, scholars said, oh, they did okay. Well, it's probably second century. The apostles were long gone, and then, and then they, you know, they compiled it later. But uh, that's not right. And more and more, uh, research is suggesting it is actually a first century document. That in the time that they are sitting and writing out the actual pages of the, the autographs of the Gospels, and as St. Paul is there writing his letters to the churches, they're also writing down the didache. They're also writing other things. You know, there are all kinds of other books like the Epistle of Barnabas, which is really great. This is, this is why it's important that Christians read uh, things in addition to Scripture, canonical books of the church, like the Epistle of Barnabas and the didache. They aren't Scripture, but they're really important. So, it's old. The text is very old, but it's also very new.
because it was written in the 20th century, the stanzas of this particular hymn, by a man named Francis Bland Tucker. Now he took the Didache and it, basically the first stanza is the text of the Didache set to meter and rhyme. It's almost identical to the text. The second stanza is not as identical, but he takes the themes of it and then reworks all these themes of the Didache into a meter and into rhyme for the hymn. So it's new in the sense that it's been reworked and, and redone and put to meter and rhyme, and old in the sense that the source material for the hymn goes back to the earliest days of the church. No, it's, it's this hymn and the Fos Hilaron, which is in the service of evening prayer, which I don't, do you know the service of evening prayer? There's a hymn in here, the Fos Hilaron, the hymn of light, joyous light of glory of the immortal Father, heavenly, holy, blessed Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And it goes on like that. You can look at it another time. Uh, but that's one of the oldest hymns in, the, in the, the hymnal as well. That goes back to the first or second century. The Christians were already singing this hymn. Um, so this is kind of nice. It's a tie-in. And here's something I do really like about this hymn, Father, We Thank Thee. I say all the time to you that the church does sort of a snowball effect. That as the church goes down this timeline, as it progresses through the years, it collects things. So when you look at our divine service, it's not exactly the way that church would have been done during the time of the apostles. The basic structure is essentially the same. Uh, and you know, we have the five pillars, but the musical setting is not. That's English, from the English Lutherans. Um, a lot of the text was imported from the German side. Uh, many of the hymns and other things that we do during the service, it's, evolved over time. And when you look at the diversity in the hymnal, there's hymns that go back to the first century and hymns that are as new as the 1960s, 1990s, 2000s even. So the church continues on and as it progresses, it takes, it, it retains all of the things that were really, 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 really good and important from the past. And it also collects the things that are really, really, really good and important for the now and things they want to preserve for the future. And this hymn is a perfect example of it. Why? Well, because it's the text of the Didache, but it's sort of rebranded. The Didache is not poetic. It doesn't rhyme. It's sort of like an epistle of Paul, really, is how it reads. Um, but here, it's changed. It's altered. The meaning of the text is there, but now it rhymes. Now it has a meter. Now you can walk home from church whistling the Didache or the tune of it, and have the poem of the Didache in your head. So it's new and it's great, but it's this collection of things that are old and combining them with the things that are new and good. Now this guy, Francis Bland Tucker, this is his picture right here on the right. Doesn't he look like a nice guy? He just looks like such a kind, sweet man. I, the kind of guy you'd like to sit down and have a beer or a coffee with and just chat. But he was one of 13 children uh, born to Reverend Beverly Dandridge Tucker. I love that is a man. Uh, he's in the Episcopal Church. I say he's a man because now the Episcopal Church ordains women. The Episcopal Church ain't what it used to be. But 
he was, so he's one of 13 children to this Episcopal priest. And uh, his father also was a bishop. Look at this, we're coming full circle. His father was a bishop in the Episcopal church. And then he went on to the seminary and he was an Episcopal priest and his brothers went on to the seminary, a number of them. Two of them for sure were Episcopal priests and then went on to become bishops themselves. And he, this endeared me to him when I was reading about this. He received an offer to become a bishop. They wanted him to be the bishop of North Carolina. And he said, no thank you. I don't really want to be a bishop. I'd much rather just be a simple parish pastor. Isn't that great? I love it so much. Anybody who wants to be a district president or a synodical president and campaigns for that kind of business, woof, never vote for somebody like that. Don't do it. It's, it's always the guys who only do it begrudgingly. I don't really want to do this, but I've been nominated and so many people want it. I, I, perhaps this is my responsibility. Those are the guys. Or you sit down and you talk with some of these people and say, well, I never really wanted to be a district president. Hey, that's great. It's keeping you humble. Then you're not on a power trip. Then you still care about the church. But the guys that say, well, I'm going to the seminary because there's a lot of, uh, a lot of power I could get into if I became a district president. And uh, like that kind of business doesn't really belong in the church. But I love that. No, thank you. I'd rather not be a bishop. I just want to be a pastor. Hey, okay, guy, let's be friends. So he was ordained as a deacon in 1918. It's sort of a different structure. I think the, you know, don't quote me on this, but I think the Roman Catholics might have a somewhat similar structure in that you can be ordained as a deacon before you are ordained into the priesthood. I guess, from my best guess, that this would be something like serving as a vicar. Uh, you're a little bit green. Well, and straight out of the seminary, you're a little green too. But they don't want to just take you with no experience other than sitting in a classroom and listening to people tell you what you should and shouldn't do and then putting you into a church. It's always better if you have a little bit of experience, you know, on-the-job training, so you sort of know what you're getting into the best that they can. So that's what I would say about that. And then in, uh, ordained as a priest in 1920. So in 1937 then, uh, he's named to the Joint Commission on the Revision of the Hymnal. And uh, that committee, the job of that was to, to organize, compile, and prepare the 1940s Episcopal book, The Hymnal. It's a really original title. You have to give them props for creativity. I think they're all called the hymnal even, maybe. There's a whole, but the 1970 hymnal, the 1940 hymnal, it's just, you know, see, look at us. Every, every one of our books has to have a different name because it can't just be the hymnal, but I don't know, maybe simpler is better. Just put the date on it, though, so you don't get confused. So the 1940 hymnal, that was his job. He was working with compiling hymns, putting things together, getting everything set so this book could be published during that three-year time. And um, he did an interview and he said, I never really thought anything about writing hymns. I was just being a pastor. I was sort of surprised they even put me on this committee, but here I was. And then I started thinking about it and looking at these hymns and I started writing hymns. 
that's really sort of when I got into it. So this particular hymn he uh, wrote or compiled, however you want to look at it, during that time working on the joint hymn committee. Uh, so it was published in 1940, this hymn was there. I think it was written in 1939, but for sure somewhere between 37 and 40. This was one of the hymns that he wrote. He wrote a number of others. Uh, and this, this particular hymn of his is actually uh, an, an outstanding hymn. And the testament to that is that if you open just about any hymnal from any denomination, this hymn is in that book. The Catholics sing it, we sing it, probably not the Orthodox. They have kind of their own style of hymnody that is not Western in most cases. Uh, but the Methodists have it. The evangelicals have it. The Reformed have it. I'll tell you why the Reformed have it in just a little bit. Okay. So this is a, quite a prolific hymn. It's in just about every hymnal. Uh, and in fact, I have a, this big, giant volume that's called something like the Anthology of Christian Hymnody. <laughs> it's a real slog sometimes. But it's interesting. And uh, talking about this hymn, they said that this is perhaps one of the most influential hymns in America period, because it was taken up by so many of these denominations and is so well known by all of these different groups. Uh, and actually, we have a number of other hymns by Tucker as well. You maybe know, maybe you don't. I was looking through these because I didn't realize... No, I learn a lot doing these hymn studies because I don't really think about many of the authors of the hymns. And then when I start reading about them, I either like them or really don't like them. <laughs> and then you find out, oh, wait, they wrote a lot of other stuff that I didn't know about. 697, Awake, O Sleeper, Rise from Death. You know that. Awake, O Sleeper, Rise from Death, and Christ shall give you light. He wrote that one. Look at that, 815. This is... Oh, yeah. All praise to thee, for thou, O King divine. This is maybe not as well known. But he wrote this one too. And then, 863. So we have four of his hymns in our hymnal by this Episcopal priest. Oh, our Father by whose name. This is another one of his more well known. Oh, Father by whose name all fatherhood is known. Uh, so anyway, but... I'm going to air some dirty laundry for you. Our Father by whose name all fatherhood is known. Great hymn. Really good. But the Methodists didn't think so. So when the Methodists put it into their hymnal, they said, Ooh, well, I don't want to offend nobody. So we better just change the word father to parent. Our parent by whose name all parenthood is known. Well, because, you know, God might not be just father. That's sort of exclusive, because he could be mother, too. Uh, if you pay attention to the news, which I guess right now I'd encourage you not to do, <laughs> if you value your blood pressure or your sanity, you probably shouldn't. So there's my warning to you. Watch at your own risk. But there was an ELCA priestess who offered a prayer 
And the prayer was, to Mother God and in the name of you, O Mother God. Great Mother. <laughs> o Parent, whose name all parenthood is known. Anyway, there's your dirty laundry for the day. Now, here's why I said we'd talk about the Reformed. We're just hitting everything today. This is great. I hope you're having as much fun as I am. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I, see, I see how it is. So the tune uh, ought to be familiar because there there's at least one other hymn that has this tune. And bum, 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 bum. Da, dun, 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 dun. Okay, so that's the tune. Now this is by uh, a fellow named Louis Bourgeois. He's French, if you couldn't tell. Uh, so he's French. He was Reformed. He was a Calvinist uh, during the time of the Swiss Reformation, which is, it overlaps some with the German Reformation, but it's, it was after. So the thing about Louis Bourgeois uh, is that he, well, the tune is attributed to him. I think it's unknown, really, but most people think that he's the one that probably wrote it. So Louis Bourgeois moved to Geneva. If you know anything about your Reformation history, you know Geneva is sort of a hotbed of activity for the Swiss Reformation. That's where John Calvin is. That's where John Calvin's church is. Louis Bourgeois becomes... John Calvin's contour. His what? His contour. His contour. Contour. Lutherans, Lutherans ought to be very familiar with this because we sort of introduced it to the world. You're welcome. Uh, Oh, if it, I don't know if it's a part of the Jewish faith. It could be. It's part of the Jewish service. Oh, I, I don't know. I'd have to look that up. Oh, I'm getting a yes. <laughs> anyway, so in, in the Lutheran tradition, the contour is an office within the church, typically held by a pastor, uh, but often hold by, held excuse me, by a theologically trained layperson. Just for trivia's sake, does anybody know who the most famous Lutheran contour was? You're going to feel really silly when you don't get this right. Johann Sebastian Bach. <laughs> Did you ever wonder why Bach had, has so many cantatas that all line up with every single date in the liturgical calendar. It's because he was in charge of the music at St. Mary's Church, I think. And, uh, well, I don't remember the name of the church. I can't remember if it's St. Mary's or not. But it was a Lutheran church. He was in charge of all the music there. He wrote a cantata every single week to be played on that Sunday that focused around the liturgical year. Um, so anyway, Bach was a contour. But the, so the position of contour, uh, was to assist with the congregational singing of hymns, to have good music during the service, and specifically to compose music. And this is why it was either a pastor or a theologically trained layperson, because 
to compose music like that for the church, you have to have sort of a knowledge of what the church believes and thinks, and you have to be able to look at the Bible and, and know how to read it and know how to study it and pull things apart. And Bach truly was a theologian. You can look at his Bible, and he has all kinds of notes in his Bible where he's pulling out things. And honestly, if you just read the, the librettos from his cantatas or uh, listen to them in English and hear what he's saying and look at the ordering of things, oh, it's just beautiful. Uh, really, it, it's, they're like sermons, how, how they preach. So the funny thing then about Louis Bourgeois being a cantor for John Calvin is this. The Calvinists had no special music. They were not allowed to sing anything in harmony. They were only allowed to sing the melody line in unison. The organ was only allowed to play the melody line in unison. And the only texts that they were allowed to sing were the Psalms. So why do they need a cantor? So basically, Louis Bourgeois' job was to make sure people knew how to sing the melody lines of the hymns and then play the melody line in church on Sunday. And then he would compose four-part harmonies to send home so that you could sing it at home because you weren't allowed to sing it in the church. Uh, so that was his job there in Geneva with Calvin. He was there about 10 years. And this is where it gets really good. I don't know if maybe he was just bored. He was a music theory teacher at one point, and he was a composer. So only doing the melody lines, I can tell you as a musician, gets old kind of fast. Imagine doing that for 10 years. So maybe it was boredom, I don't know. But he changed the melodies to one of the psalms. And it wasn't just the people of the church who were angry. It was the entire town of Geneva that was angry at him to the degree that the police came and arrested him and put him in prison at the order of the town council of Geneva because he changed the melody. Yeah. <laughs> so John Calvin had to go personally to the prison and to the town council and to advocate for Louis Bourgeois to get him released from prison. And they said, okay, but all of the music, every manuscript he has that has that new melody, every lesson plan he has outlined about how to teach it, it all has to be burned. And we'll let him go, but he has to burn all that new stuff. So, you know, there are other options for you who are not content with some of the changes that were made to the Lutheran service book. If you want names, I have them. <laughs> so anyway, then after all of that, he left Geneva, and he actually left the Reformed faith too. And you want to know where he went? To the Catholics. No, 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 it can't be that that good, Nancy. Not to the Lutherans, no. He went to the Catholics, and then his daughter was baptized as a Roman Catholic. He said, I'm done with these Reformed. Okay, but anyway, so now we have his tune that he wrote, and you know a little bit more about him. Oh yeah, I have this quote here. He was imprisoned for, ch for changing the tunes without a license. <laughs> oh, you have a permit for that, sir? 
Oh my goodness, that's so great. See, this is the kind of stuff that you don't ever know about your hymns until you start digging a little bit. So the more you know, okay? And that's basically just trivia for you. The next time you're at trivia night and they ask you, well, why was Louis Bourgeois thrown in prison? And you can say, oh, because he changed him tunes without a license. And you'll get the points. All right, so let's take a quick look at this text here because we're already running low on time. Father, we thank thee who has planted thy holy name within our hearts. This is just beautiful. Knowledge and faith and life immortal, Jesus thy Son to us imparts. Thou, Lord, didst make all for thy pleasure, didst give us food for all our days, giving in Christ the bread eternal. Thine is the power, thine be the praise. Isn't that nice? What a nice text. I mean, that's, it's a prayer, and here's where the prayer comes from in the Didache. Actually, both of these texts, chapters 9 and 10, are post-Eucharist. So the Didache says, hey, if you're really a Christian, then what you do is, on the Sabbath, you get together, you hear the word, you pray, and you have the Eucharist. And then after the Eucharist, you say these prayers. And if you read through it, they're very similar to many of the uh, prayers that we continue to say. Th so, but, you know, things like the collects for the day, that's not new to this. If you know the TLH, you know these aren't new prayers. They updated the language a little bit so you're not saying thee and, and thine and thou and things like that, which sometimes I miss, honestly, because I kind of like that. Uh, but so they updated the language, but the collects are still the same. Uh, and those go back a long ways. The church has been praying the same prayer for specific Sundays a long time. The prayers before and after the Eucharist, ooh, those are old, really old. So this is the text from the Didache. Well, after communion, what do you do? Well, you pray, of course, silly. And here's how you pray. Uh, so I have the text for comparison in the middle here so you can see this hymn versus the original text. We give you thanks, Holy Father, for your holy name which you have caused to dwell in our hearts. Look at that. You see how similar that is? It's, he, I mean, he basically, his whole first stanza, he just takes this text straight from the Didache and just gives a little bit of meter and a little bit of rhyme and sets it on its way. And for the knowledge of faith and immortality that you have made known to us through Jesus Christ, your servant, to you be the glory forever. You, almighty master, created all things for your name's sake, and gave food and drink to humans to enjoy, so that they might give you thanks. But to us, you have graciously given spiritual food and drink and eternal life through your servant. Oh, it's beautiful. Excuse me, it's beautiful. Um, and you see some of that. Listen really closely to the prayer, the post-communion prayer. It's very similar. You're learning all the time. The liturgy always teaches. Okay? Watch o'er thy church, O Lord, in mercy. Save it from evil. Guard it still. Perfect it in thy love. Unite it. Cleansed and conformed unto thy will. That's great. That should be the prayer of every Christian. Lord, conform my will to thine. Let my will be aligned with thine. Not my will be done, but thine that you aren't the one really who matters. The Lord will listen to you, but it, you don't pray, 
well, I really hope that you let my will be done for a change. You say, thy will be done. Thy will be done. And not what I will, but what you will. And permit that I, O oh Lord, would will the things that you will for me. That everything you think is good for me, I also think is good for me. That I don't go against you, I don't fight you, but that I be conformed to you. That I become like you. That I live the way you live. That I think the way you think. That I will the way you will. That's following Jesus on the way. That's always the prayer of the Christian. Which is why you continue coming to the Eucharist because it continues to transform you. Taking Jesus into yourself, you are what you eat and you are transformed. And as St. John Chrysostom says, I said this last time, in a way you're transformed into flaming lions made terrible to the devil. I love it. Think about that. You turn and you walk away and the devil runs away from you because he can't stand the sight of you. Mm. If that doesn't give you chills, then you might want to check your pulse. Okay? As grain once scattered over the hillsides was in this broken bread made one, so from all lands thy church be gathered into thy kingdom by thy son. Great. Here's the Didache text in comparison. Remember your church, O Lord, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love and according to your promises. Lord, you've said that you would do this. Remember your promises. And also, remember this, when God remembers, it isn't that he's forgotten and that you have to remind him. This is not the parable of the widow who comes to the judge's door at midnight and bangs on the door and the judge says, fine, I'll give you justice because you annoyed me, you old bat. This is not applicable. The whole point of that parable is not to say, well, you know, you're like that annoying widow and God's not really going to pay attention to you unless you really bug him. So make sure you pray and pray and pray and pray because God will start finally dealing with you once you annoy him enough. You know, Jeepers, what kind of comfort does that give you? That the Lord who never sleeps nor slumbers and whose ear is always open doesn't really have the time to, get, to give you unless you're going to stand outside his door and annoy him? No, the point of that is to say that even this unjust judge who doesn't care about this widow, who doesn't want to help her, who doesn't want to plead her case, even he will finally break down and help that woman now his motivation is because he's annoyed, but think about that. If even this man will do this for this woman, how much more will God give you justice and hear your case and plead it as he loves you? Much more. Much more will he do that. So the Lord is not forgetful. You don't have to go and say, oh, oh um, sorry, did you forget you were supposed to Deliver me from evil? Because I've been delivered into evil and, you know, maybe, maybe you forgot. And he says, oh, shoot, I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. I did forget. Here, let me take care of that. I mean, what kind of a God is that? No, to remember means that he makes his promise a reality. Uh, when In the Old Testament, when it says he remembers his promise, he remembers Israel, it means that he does for them as he said he would. God remembers Noah, and he saves them in the ark. God remembers Israel, 
and he delivers them according to the promise. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this unto my remembrance. It's not recollection. It's an acting the fully fleshed, real promise of God. Remember your church. <coughs> Deliver it from all evil and make it perfect in your love. And from the four winds to gather the church that has been sanctified into your kingdom just as this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains and then was gathered together and became one, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Isn't that great? A prayer for peace and unity in the church. We still pray for that. If you listen to the prayer of the church and at other places through the liturgy, for an end to all discord and strife for an end to all schism, for peace and prosperity. Not just in the world, but in the church as well. Warring factions in the church does the church no good. A kingdom divided against itself doesn't stand. So just as these grains were scattered and then brought together to make this loaf that we break, that is your body, may you also, by this same body, unite your church as one. Okay? Any questions here? Good, you're smart cookies. All right. Let's sing this hymn. I'll sing you the tune once through. And the tune's pretty easy, and there's only two stanzas. So I won't sing the first stanza by myself. We'll just sing both stanzas together. 652 Here's the tune Okay, stanza one together. Father, we thank thee who has planted thy holy name within our hearts. Knowledge and faith and life immortal, Jesus thy Son to us imparts. Thou, Lord, didst make all for thy pleasure, didst give us food for all our days, giving in Christ the bread eternal. Thine is the power, be thine the praise. Watch o'er thy church, O Lord, in mercy. 
mercy, save it from evil, God instill. Perfected in thy love, united, cleansed and conformed unto thy will. As grain once scattered on the hillsides was in this broken bread made one, so from all lands thy church be gathered into the kingdom of thy Son. Hey, great. Last call for questions. Very good, very good. We'll see you at the high altar.